Welcome to Romance Recovery, the podcast, presented by Meeting the Special Need. I am your host, Shawnee Eskridge, the creator of Meeting the Special Need, faith-based clinical therapist, entrepreneur, wife, and mother to amazing people on the autism spectrum, and the resident reality and soap watcher of our family. My goal is to give parents and couples early intervention and relationship techniques to adapt to life on the spectrum. On each episode of Romance Recovery, I will share proven strategies and tips from professionals, families within the autism community, and current events to support you and your family through life's journey on the spectrum, empowering you to know and use interventions faster. Let's start today's episode. I'm Shawnee Eskridge, and I'm here with my husband, Terrence Eskridge. And we are the hosts of Romance Recovery, the podcast by Meeting the Special Needs. And before we dive into our story, we want to give a, sh- a special shout out and thank you to Keith and Anxiety About Anxiety podcast. And we want to thank you guys for having us as guests. But we also want to thank you guys for allowing people like us to share our stories and just positively contributing to the conversation around mental health. And so with that, uh, Terrence and I want to share our story with our new Anxiety About Anxiety family. So Terrence and I have been married for the last 11 years, but we met in the sixth grade. Seven years old. Yes. So that means that we have about 24 years of friendship between the two of us. And our story actually starts off after we had our first child. Where we got the diagnosis of autism and Asperger's and what it meant for me and our daughter and our lives and everything. And from those two diagnoses within one year, um, it completely changed our lives. It um, really gave a sense of direction to where I would go in my career. I always knew I wanted to be a counselor. And what I did not know was that I would have a specialization in special needs. And so from those two diagnoses, kind of the bad all at the Mm. same time, because our life is not easy with what some refer to as an invisible disability, right? So you want to start with Jackie? Yeah, let's start with our oldest daughter, Jackie. She is autistic and she was diagnosed. What year was that? Well, she was three turning four. So here we are. Um, how we lead up to getting tested is um, Jackie was experiencing 
symptoms at a very early age. So uh, parents who are wondering what are some of the symptoms of autism in children, uh, this would be your part to listen very carefully. So as Jackie was uh, a toddler, we would take her for her annual checkup at her pediatrician. And the one thing the pediatrician kept saying to me was that she was not, she didn't have the vocabulary she was supposed to have for a toddler. And at first I thought her pediatrician was being a little overzealous. You know, how many words do you expect a child to say at two? Yeah. Um, and what really do you expect a two-year-old to be talking about? But um, a part of the story I've never shared, even with you, Terrence, is that it was Dr. Field's granddaughter that um, kind of cued me into that something may be a little off. Because well, Dr. Field's granddaughter. Well, Dr. Field's granddaughter and our girl, Jackie, she they are very, very close in age. They are they are literally months apart. And so there was the episode of Dr. Phil when she was really, really little. She was like at the same growth spurt Jackie was. And she came on the show and she was having full-fledged conversations with Dr. Phil and her grandma right there on stage. And I was like, Jackie doesn't say all those words. She doesn't say all those words. And start to wonder and to start and to start to guess and transparent and admit that there was also a little bit of competitiveness, a spirit of competitiveness. Like, why is it my child talking? I have a degree in communications. Why isn't my child talking? Like I immediately made it about me. And wow. And parents, if you're experiencing that, find a way to let go of that quickly because if you hold on to that, you is less energy that your child is getting to get the help that they actually need. So I started asking around and a very close friend of mine has a brother who's autistic and she didn't, she hadn't relayed that information to me. And so when I started asking questions, um, she just opened up and she started telling me about her baby brother and she gave me an article as a resource to read. And so I read through the article. And when I tell you every single thing of, in the article, every symptom, all the activities that this young boy likes, because the, uh, the article was about a young boy who had graduated from an Ivy League college at like age 14. Yeah. And how um, he was showing signs of autism as early as four article all the symptoms are the same is completely reminding me of Jackie but it's also reminding me of you and my first thought is I cannot say anything to this man without irrefutable proof <laughs> so I, I I can't go to this man with just some random article so in the meantime I keep working with Jackie to try to build up her vocabulary because I'm thinking still that 
you know, my job as a mom. Maybe that, maybe the pediatrician is telling me that I'm not doing my job as a mom. Yeah, you took that very personally. Yeah. And so I just kept trying to work with her. And parents, just again, being transparent, by work with her, I mean, we were having sessions every day about sight words and all this stuff. And she was barely three and a half. It was a lot of pressure very early. And, but I, I, I'll give it to our, our baby girl. She stepped up to the challenge, you know? Yeah. And so we would keep going back to the pediatrician for the appointments. And finally, like after multiple checkups, um, our pediatrician, her pediatrician, pulled me to the side and she said, Miss Eskridge, look, I can tell that every single time I tell you that her vocabulary is not up to par, that you go home and you work with her. And I'm, I may be coming across wrong, but I'm not trying to tell you that you're not a good mom. I can clearly see that you're a good mom. She said, but what I'm trying to tell you is, I think that there's something going on with your baby that is outside the scope of my knowledge. And I want us to address it before she goes to school and starts getting picked on. That's like, it broke me down. You know, the mama parts. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> I know a thing or two about being bullied in school. So it was, it, it hit a certain place. And um, I asked her, I said, okay, well, what do you suspect that it is? And she said, well, have you thought about having her tested for autism? And I was like, yeah, actually, I have thought about having her tested. It's all right with you. I can refer you over to the Hearing, Speech, and Vision Center for the local school district, and um, they can test her there and determine it there. And so that's how we got. Um, and yeah. I think it's important to note that because some parents don't know what to expect. Um, and some parents have anxiety about giving it, getting their children tested. <laughs> so um, just to kind of walk them through it a little bit, um, the testing came in two parts. And if I'm not mistaken, the tests were six months apart. Is that yeah. right, too? Six months yeah. apart in that moment was she has extraordinary photographic memory oh yeah <laughs> yeah because the test was six months apart this was a building she had never been in before months later and Jackie remembers exactly where everything is every room every desk tell you what had moved what was out of place yes. all the things uh, testing the second time that something very significant happened. Um, the first being her, the the tester surprised. She was like, I want to go play with the toy again. And she was telling them the toy that was in one of the rooms and talking about because she hadn't been in that room yet. And the other tester knew exactly what she was talking about. It was like, because she was four years old at the time. And but I remember something from 
months ago. Completely surprised. She was like, wait, she remembers that? The, the, the four toys she wanted to play with in the room where the eye test was, she was specific. <laughs> she was like, she came back just to play with those. Was, that was actually quite funny because she knew exactly where everything was and she she had the attention of everybody in the building mm-hmm. um, and, and everybody was kind of paying attention to the fact that like this little baby that they didn't even remember remembered them mm-hmm. and I remember the front desk receptionist talking to us about that actual test results and and oh the last parts of the test not the test results per se and where they're asking her all these questions and she gets fed up with them asking her questions she starts skipping ahead on the test and just answering the questions for them just they're asking her questions one at a time and pointing out answers and stuff but she's just like she just starts grabbing the cards. She just starts giving the answers for the person. Just like, I'm tired of this. And we need to get done. And I think that was part of the diag- that gave her the diagnosis in the first place. But so frustrated that they were, that she lashed out like that. But at the same time, I actually understood her impatience because already done with her and I knew this was stuff we knew this was stuff she already knew and the tester is it was the same stuff she already been over with the tester so as far as Jack was concerned it was you should know I know this already we've been through this already so the fact that she had to do it again made her even more impatient and then after that they gave the results and said that she was autistic and I just remember I remember I was going through the book and saw the results myself because I was reading ahead in the book because she was talking too much in my mind. (laughs) And I remember reading the results about autism and her being autistic. And I remember thinking, but she's not, she hadn't displayed nothing different outside of norm for a four-year-old, at least to me. And the results of autism were there and I was like, well, she's normal. And I remember looking over at you and you were just looking at me. And right at that moment, I knew that what I thought was normal wasn't normal. And I just remember telling you, you knew. Man, um, at that moment, I was so torn between staying normal for my baby and not um, disrupting the test for her because she was very uh, frustrated. She, you know, once she feels like she has something, she likes to move on to the next thing. And I actually don't think that's part of her autism as much as it is. She just gets that naturally because she actually has two parents that are like that. Um, And I don't know if that's an anomaly or not, given that she has one parent who's on the the spectrum and one parent who is not, but we share, we all three of us share that same trait. So 
that attribute in her was very present. And so I was just really focused on how do I keep the situation as calm as possible for my baby? But also at that moment, if I'm just, again, being really transparent, I wasn't even thinking of you as my husband. Like we've been friends before anything since we were 11 years old. And I was just like, how am I just, how am I supposed to tell my friend that, you know, this big diagnosis may be what he's going through. Like, um, I knew about, because I had done so much reading by that time, like I knew that the troubles that we were having in the communication department were 99% probably going to be due to your Asperger's. I, I now at that point had that understanding. And I was just like, well, this is why we broke up when we were 16, because he wasn't communicating and I couldn't understand why he wasn't communicating. And, you know, I thought it was me, but it turns out it's not me. It's, it's autism. And fast forward, here we are, our daughter's being confirmed as autistic and you are losing your stuff. Yeah. Okay. You are, you are losing your stuff. You're doing that rapid tapping of your fingers thing and you're tapping your foot and you're rocking back and forth and you look like you're about to blow your gasket. And for our listeners out there, like if you need a mental picture, like just imagine a light-skinned man, his face is turning like cherry red and smoke is coming out of his ears. <laughs> imagine that. So that's what was going on so um so once I saw you like really getting agitated because honestly you look like you were about to tear up the room you look like you were either about to tear up the room or like you were about to cuss out the moderators of the tape look, ne- to, neither one of those situations were going to be good look to quote Cat Williams I wasn't going to tear up nothing I couldn't afford you took the words right out of my mouth because that's exactly why I took you out the room. I was like, we can't afford nothing in this room. And I was like, I was like um, I remember I asked the moderators, I said, could you please excuse us from the test? Like, is it okay if we step out? And I didn't want to step out was the thing. I seriously mm. didn't want to step out. It was stepping out to have that conversation with you was the beginning of the hardest things I've ever had to do. So because I was essentially leaving my baby in a room with people I don't really know like that. And so um, I stepped out and I stepped outside with you. Like initially we tried to have the conversation in the hallway. I don't know if you remember this part, but initially we tried to have the conversation in the hallway and you got loud, like your voice leveled up and I could tell that you were getting Jackie's attention. And that's what made us go outside. I don't remember that part. I believe you. I just don't remember it. So we get outside and that's when you hollered. You knew. You knew. How long did you know? Mm -hmm. And y'all, what came next was a conversation of me explaining to him that I had known for a little bit over six months or I suspected it 
for a little over six months. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? And I was just like, I can't come to you and tell you these things without irrefutable proof. And I remember asking you the hard question that day was, and what would you have done if I had just told you this off the strength of an article? And then you were mad because I was right. <laughs> and honestly, not even as your wife, as your friend, I was lost that day. I was lost because I felt like news like this should have come from like a grandma, a mom, like, there was a part of me that just felt so out of place being the one to have to tell you. Yeah, well, I mean, all the signs were there the whole time I was growing up, but nobody ever took me to get tested or anything like that back then. And so I spent my whole time growing up feeling like there was something wrong with me because of how different I was. Because I, I mean, I wasn't unintelligent. I noticed quite quickly that I was different from all my cousins and different from most of the kids in school. And and it was it was pretty significant for me to see the difference. I just didn't know what it was. What significant differences did you see in between you, your cousins, and your friends? Uh, the biggest thing is they knew what to say to people. Like I ended up being tongue-tied. I either ended up being tongue-tied or I ended up talking about stuff that nobody really cared about. And I noticed that I like to talk about things I like to talk about to the point people would just leave me talking. They just would walk out of the conversation with me because I guess they felt like they couldn't get out of the conversation with me. I can understand that. I can understand that. I remember conversations when we were teenagers and you would talk about Zelda or any video game that you were playing. Most of the time it was Zelda and I would just go to sleep. I would just go to sleep. It was from talking to you that I learned how to listen to people without actually looking at them <laughs> and, and being able to like zone out and tune back in and no one ever noticed you know, when I wasn't paying attention anymore. So <laughs> I learned how to like balance all of that because, you know, you don't want to be rude. Like that's, <laughs> that's the, that's the thing. Like, you, well, good people don't want to be rude. <laughs> and, you know, you want to, especially when you, you feel like you're in a relationship and you know, you want to make your significant other feel special. The last thing you want to do is make them feel unheard. So I, as a teenager, had to figure out how to listen to you, but stay awake and be able to pay attention by doing stuff I actually wanted to do. Yeah. And in some weird way, I found that staying active while you were talking actually helped me to pay more attention. So that that's like deep-seated and rooted in us coming up as a child um there was a specific reason you didn't know as a child you want to talk to the people about what that was i think you actually have a little more information than me about than it to be honest 
Okay, okay. So um, throughout the course of our marriage, I have grown extremely close to your cousin, Andrea. Um, I feel like she's my cousin, but hmm. for the purpose of explaining it correctly to the people, she's Terrence's cousin, y'all. And she and I have become really good friends and I love her dearly. And um, she tries to, she's, she always tries to clue me in on the family dynamics in a way that she and I communicate best. Me and Andrea have a much easier relationship. And so she was talking to me, um, well, we were just talking period. And you being diagnosed with Asperger's was a part of the conversation because at the time, your grandmother wasn't having the best reaction to the news of Jackie's diagnosis and then a year later, your diagnosis. And she had made the comment that it was ironic how you two didn't have, didn't have autism until I went and got you tested. So she mm -hmm. made this very irresponsible comment as if you guys having Asperger's was my fault or I somehow gave it to you or, you know, it, or that this was something that I put into motion. And I was really upset. And Andrew was like, Sean, listen, you can't go there. She's like, I know where you want to go and you justify it, but you can't go there. She said, look, this is what it really is. And she started to tell me about how when you were roughly Jackie's age, her mother and your grandmother, who are sisters, um, were having a conversation about you. And her mother went off on your grandmother because she told her in that conversation, you know he needs to get tested. We work around too many of these people every day because both of them worked in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, she said, we work around too many people like him every day. You know that you need to get him tested. Specifically for autism. She was like, you know you need to get him tested. And your grandmother was not hearing it. That's why you didn't get tested. And that's why nobody else brought it up. Yep. So, so that's kind of the main reason why we didn't know when you were a child. Another reason why we didn't know when you were a child is because we were not having the conversations as a culture about mental health that we're having now. True. You know, I remember coming up in school when I were two of the smartest kids in our class. And so, you know, the smart kids tend to, um, and, and I don't really like just calling us the smart kids, but it's like the kids who actually got better grades in class. Cause a lot mm -hmm. of kids get good grades, but they dumb as a box of rocks. So let me qualify that. The kids, <laughs> um, but I was one of the students who was asked to tutor what was then still called the troubled kids mm. or the resource kids. And these were kids with that, that always got into trouble that were not getting work done. 
were tend, tend to be disruptive in class. And now as a medical professional, what I've learned and what I know for sure is that those children usually were going through trauma at home mm-hmm. and they had nobody addressing that. And so they would come to school and act out. It had no actual reflection on their intelligence or any of that. And it actually mm-hmm. didn't take me being a medical professional to figure all of that out. Um, and being their tutor, I learned that just in peer-to-peer contact, I learned that. I learned that they knew the same stuff I knew. They just didn't know how to articulate it to the teacher. Yeah. And so when they would hesitate to speak or they would stutter or they would stumble over certain words, maybe because some of them were going through dyslexia and it was undiagnosed, anytime they showed any sign of any imperfection, they were considered resource and taken out of gen ed class and just thrown in the closet pretty much pretty much right so i guess grandmother didn't want that to happen to you no i don't think she did and i wouldn't want that to happen either but at the same time there is a there was something stuff going on with me because i knew i was different and i learned to mask my symptoms a lot growing up which was giving me all kinds of anxiety on top of it because I had to basically start counting my sentences to know when to stop talking about something. Really? Yeah. That okay, was this is thing. news to me. Like, this is an exclusive. I want to hear this. Because <laughs> this is like, you've never said this to me before, so I want to hear this. Like, I'm not sure if you even noticed it, but I, like at some point in time, we're roughly high school age. Like, even if I was talking to you about Zelda, I would say five sentences and then stop. Caught that, um, like, toward the latter half of what we now call the first half of our relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And, And just to clear that up with the listeners real quick. Okay, so we dated from the sixth grade prom to the spring of 10th grade. Yeah. And then... I broke up with him. No gas, like real facts. I broke up with him because when I asked him where did he see us three to five years from now, he could not reiterate to me a conversation we had already had, which made me feel like he wasn't serious about the plans that we had made to go to college together and and all these things. And I tended to be a very serious kid because I had a very hard life (laughs) as a child. And for me, school was my way out. So when he couldn't tell me what the plan was, I'm done. I, I need a man that leads. I need a man that knows where we're going and all the things. Honey, I had all the sass. Okay. So I left him. all the sass indeed (laughs) and so um i left at 16 and then you know we lived our lives and um you were having symptoms of autism that we were unaware of at the time but Mm -hmm. i was out here living my best life 
And um, then somewhere around age 24. The short of it is that we got married at 24. We had Jackie shortly before my 25th birthday of the next year. We had no idea when we got married. Like we had no idea that this was even an issue on the table. We just, we had committed to communicating better was the thing. You know, we talked about why we broke up at 16 and I was still able to tell you like communication is still a big deal for me. And at the time I was even working on my bachelor's degree in communications. So, <laughs> so communications was my life. And I was just like, Hey, if, if you don't talk, it's going to be a problem. And the first year we were together, like well, the first year we were back together as adults, like you could do no wrong. Like you were Casanova, you were, attentive and showing up with gifts leaving me love notes at the front desk of my dormitory and um being very caring and attentive and you know we scheduled time together all these things that we didn't know would be the seeds of what we would need to like survive this relationship and thrive in this relationship and you know turn into um kind of our ministry and how we help people right you know we we had no idea that that was coming so when you say masking like in real time i had no idea that you were masking i just thought this was who you really were no no they were all symptoms all symptoms and uh, and things that I'd learned to uh, ways of learning to deal with um, my symptoms of autism. Like I'd learned to to count sentences to keep from rattling on about topics that I was interested in. I'd learned to uh, I'd been trying to learn to read people and. For everybody but you, I'd learned to read them pretty well. Because um, I keep you on your toes. <laughs> and it, it, I can't say that it was body language I learned to read. I just learned to predict them from their patterns, from how they behaved and other stuff. Um, body language was, was never really my strong suit. But it was so many other things to just talking to people and watching them and then taking how somebody else reacted and then doing it myself. And that was a lot of a lot of my teenage years from middle school and high school just doing what other people did to see if it would work for me and then trying to make it work for me if it was actually something I liked. Which I guess a lot of people do as they're growing up, but not as literally as I did it. Right. Like, I can remember as a little girl um, mimicking my dad's laugh because <laughs> his his laughter is hilarious to me. But his laugh, like, the older I got, the less I liked the sound of his laugh on me. So I just let that go. But my dad's laugh is hilarious to me. So when you say, I guess a lot of people do that, like a lot of people do it in some form, 
but I think the difference between neurotypical and atypical people is when atypical people do it, they do it for keeps, but neurotypical people, it's like, we just trying to find our voice and then we figure out what we like and what we don't like. And we, we may be able to let some stuff go. Atypical people, not so much. Yeah. Like y'all keep it as part of a formula. Like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And neurotypical people are more like, nah, nah. And for our listeners, because I knew I just threw out some terms that for some listeners may be like, oh, what was that? Neurotypical is basically someone not on the spectrum. Atypical is usually someone on the spectrum, just to be clear. So the first year starts out romantic. The proposal was romantic. Um, How you wanted to get married was romantic. Um, how we actually ended up getting romantic, I mean, getting married was full of drama, but <laughs> the no, the nuts and bolts of it was romantic. And then after we have Jackie and before she is diagnosed, the romance stops and that causes like major rift in the relationship. Yeah. Um, okay. For me, it's on my end. It stopped because things changed. You changed. And um, to be honest, you changed not because of anything you did wrong. You were, you just had Jackie. Literally just had Jackie. And you were going through postpartum. And I did not know how to take that. And you tried to talk to me about it beforehand. You knew where you could go. You could feel yourself. You literally could feel yourself changing. And you communicated with me as you're a want to do. And one, I took it lightly. And two, it was just the depth of how far it changed you, left me bewildered, bewildered, lost, and it was messing up my pattern. And I did not know what to do. And I understand that now in retrospect. In real time, however, I felt alone, unheard, unsupported. Um, I felt like I was trapped Um, and that was, that had layers to it, the feeling of being trapped. And from a medical professional standpoint, that took us from, well, that took us to a whole nother level of being neurodiverse, meaning having multiple uh, neurological disorders working in one family unit. Mm-hmm. So we unknowingly have autism at work or Asperger's at work, but now we have a form of severe depression at work. Mm-hmm. And in addition to all the other feelings I was having, feeling unheard part 
was really critical because I did go to a doctor. I did do the responsible thing. I did seek out help. And I was told by a doctor and a team of RNs that he was training that what I had was not postpartum, but what I had was baby blues. And baby blues is significantly different than postpartum, significantly. And it took me going to get a second opinion and honestly knowing myself and knowing the symptoms for me to figure out and confirm that I did in fact have postpartum. And I had postpartum strong for maybe actually until the first year after the second baby. So we had baby Kaylin and with Kaylin, I definitely had baby blues rather than postpartum because, you know, we were hoping for a boy. Yeah. We love Kaylin to pieces, but we were hoping for a boy. And that was rooted in fear on mm-hmm. my part because I was always scared about raising sisters. And um, honestly had very high anxiety about that, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, because because my past is, is you know, somewhat traumatic. And um, being that I didn't have a good relationship with my own sisters, I thought that that would automatically disqualify me from being a good mother to sisters. And I thank God every day for really good friends who have really good relationships with their siblings and who were able to sit down and like talk to me and speak life into me and coach me. And so as I was coming out of that though, we we had only maybe been two years into your diagnosis yeah. at that time. And there was still like this heavy feeling of not being supported by you. And that's when honestly, you know, for our listeners, just being transparent is when I just got fed up and I had a meltdown of my own because I was just like, you guys, you and Jackie are what's referred to as on the high functioning end of autism. Yeah. And just to give the people more context about that, can you clarify like the difference between autism and Asperger's if it's all on the spectrum? Okay, so the difference between autism and Asperger's is um, Asperger's usually is higher functioning than autism. I mean, there there are high functioning autism and a high function, but Asperger's is usually always high functioning. Um, Asperger's usually focus in on one thing. I mean, at autism can do it as well, but it's almost always the case with Asperger's. They'll focus in and talk about one thing in specific or do one thing specifically or whatever. Um, people with Asperger's can live independently, but people with autism alone usually cannot, depending on their level of the, on the spectrum is determined how much of individualism they can live with and whether they'll need help with things or not. 
Uh, and Asperger's usually have a higher IQ. Okay, so with that being said, now that you've kind of given the qualifier, I wanted to make sure that people had that before I said the next thing. The onset or the trigger of my meltdown was, I knew that you and Jackie had the ability to learn at a higher level. And the issue was not that you were incapable of learning, but the issue was that you learned differently. And what I've learned is that in comparison to my peers, I approach your autism and Asperger's very differently than the norm. Like okay. for our listeners, I want you guys to think about what's the one thing in your life that everyone, almost everyone in your life unanimously says the same thing about you. The one thing that they're like, you do that differently than everybody else. You're really unique in that area. You're really, really good at that. I never thought of it like that. Nobody does that like you do that. What is that one thing? What is that one thing? Because for me, it's how I approach my daughter's and my husband's autism and Asperger's. I hear from teachers all the time that I go harder for my kid. And um, I hear from my in-laws that I go hard for my husband. My father-in-law has been, he doesn't know this. And maybe if he hears this podcast, he will. Um, but there were a lot of days and a lot of years in this marriage where your dad was my strength. Mm, really? Yeah. Um, your dad didn't know it was Asperger's. He didn't know it was autism. But he knew you were different. And he couldn't put a name to it. Um, and yeah. I remember you, I remember you telling me stories that you thought he was it, that at one point he thought that you were just gay and that was the issue. Yeah. And but out of all the spats, all the fights that we had and dad had growing up, uh, growing up because I was different than what he expected me to be. But he changed and I changed. So the way we get along now is not the same way we got along 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think that's because initially and your dad still has some of this but your dad like mass culture refers to it as swagger mm -hmm. um older generations refer to it as machismo or um charisma it's just that it factor that defined manliness and mm -hmm. it's usually assertive and usually um very smooth communicator and you and your dad are night and day in that area <laughs> you and your dad are night and day like your dad can flip a situation to romantic in five seconds or less and you are like no i need at least a month to plan and i think that's where you two butted heads and i think i not i think i know because your father said so when you and I got married, 
that gave him hope that you were going to be all right. Yeah. And I know a lot of parents with children on the spectrum struggle with, are they going to, are they going to be able to live on their own? Are they going to be able to get a job? Are they going to get married? Um, will the person love them for them? Yeah. You know, is, is my baby going to continue to be bullied in school? Um, and those are all legitimate questions. The way I approach them though, is I approach you and Jackie on the level that you're on. It just means that the whole situation is different. I look at Jackie's help and all the classes and the support she's getting. And I think that, you know, I didn't get any of that. And I watch and see how she's grown so much in the last few years. Yeah. And I think of all the work you did with her, of all the work her teachers at school and therapists and all that. And I'm not going to lie, there are times where in my darker moments, I feel like things would be so much more different if I had found out when I was younger and I, I had learned. I don't think that's a feeling. I think that's a fact. I think if you, and we've talked about this, we've talked about this off air. If you had the team and the resources when you were Jackie's age that Jackie has now, oh, this would be a completely different conversation. Yeah, but back then it wasn't the same situation in the late 80s and early 90s. Not in America, no. No. What I've learned throughout the course of earning my master's degree is America is severely behind on research and the dissemination of information to the masses. Uh, England and certain Spanish speaking countries, they have been researching autism, autism since the late 50s. And, wow. and we're like doing studies and, you know, putting together data and figuring out very important things like um, children take better to therapy if parents adapt their home environment to the therapeutic setting. And they figured out that parents were more willing to adapt their home to the therapeutic setting if one, they were trained on how to do it. Two, they understood the benefits of, of the training. And three, if they themselves were also in therapy. So don't just have the child in therapy, have the parent in therapy. And yeah. that's part of how I approach autism differently. And um, it's from those things that we birthed um meeting the special need from um we were we were actually having a date night yeah one night and in the middle of the in the middle of the date like god just started downloading into me all of these things that needed to go into a course and he had me work eight hours on a powerpoint presentation and 
from that PowerPoint presentation, I had it beta tested with professionals in the field of education and special needs education and um, services for children on the spectrum, various different uh, services, speech therapy, ABA therapy, occupational therapy. And I had all these people beta test this course and they all came back to me with the same feedback, which was copyright this now and get it in the hands of parents. <laughs> and that was, yeah. that was two years ago. We didn't know that a pandemic was coming. Um, no. and, and now we are in a time where this is needed more than ever yeah so that's why we that's where we got meeting the special need from we want to teach parents and loved ones and family members and caregivers how to not be stuck on your doctor's waiting list yeah you know especially that we want to teach you how to start helping your loved one at home yeah, whether they're whether it's a child or an adult, because there are certain things I had to learn, certain ways I've had to cope and change, and and I don't mean changes in change negatively. I mean I love you, and I want you to be happy and joyful, and there are certain changes I've had to make to make sure that that happens. And is it? Is it okay for me to be honest about my happiness level before now? Yeah. Like, and I and I want to be transparent about this because I know that there are going to be women who are listening to this and some men who are listening to this that know how I feel when I say this. Neurodiverse marriages are harder. They are inherently harder than your completely neurotypical marriage and you know that's not to offend anybody but if you're having a hard time believing me on that check the stats um yes on average most americans get divorced at a rate of 40 49.5 percent um but if you look at neurodiverse marriages where uh, one or more people on the in the marriage have some t some sort of neurological disorder or challenge, those marriages actually fall apart at a rate of sixty five percent or higher. What? When the odds are stacked against us. Wow. And, and it's because it's because. The, the neurotypical spouse usually feels overexerted and underappreciated. They're not given the tools to handle the spouse that they have. The other mm -hmm. side of it is that they're usually dealing with a spouse who's undiagnosed and refuses to get diagnosed. And so then what do you do when you've read all the articles, you know, that your spouse is autistic or on the spectrum, but you know that your spouse is not hearing it. It's not gonna happen. 
Yeah. No parts of it. Disabled? No. No, you want me to just sit at home and collect Social Security check? Like, no. Yeah. And what do you do with that? And meeting the special needs says, even if your spouse doesn't get the diagnosis, that shouldn't prevent you from um, implementing certain therapies at home to make yeah. your life easier. Yeah, and there's also the opposite end of the spectrum too. The the people who try to weaponize the autism to to not do anything, to not grow, to yeah. not and this just remember that just because you're autistic does not mean that you do not grow. It does not mean that you cannot change. It does not mean that you cannot get better by I've I know because not even my own story, but a coworker of mine who was on the lower end of the autism spectrum and as in did not blink as intelligence was in question and had very severe symptoms. But if you talk to him now, he did a lot of hard work growing up. He did a lot of hard work to to get rid of the problem symptoms of staring too hard, of 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 stuttering because he didn't like stuttering. He learned how to move his hands while he was talking and and several other things because he wanted to because he did not want to stay where he was and be a hindrance. He wanted to change and he changed and found someone to love and got and he is married with a child on the way now. Surprise. And, and a lot of a lot of families that I talk to in my support groups, um, which is the best tip I can give to any listener that's kind of on my end of the situation, like get in support groups, um, vet them before you join them, because some of these support groups are just there to bash and that's not the type of support group you want to be a part of. You want to be a part of a support group that's actually going to offer you solutions. Um, but get a part of a support group. Get a therapist. Hmm. <laughs> get a therapist. Shameless plug. I am a certified clinical therapist. Get a therapist. I have two. So, <laughs> so get a therapist. Um because you're going to need, you know, a space where you can vent without judgment and the feedback be a possible solution. Like if yeah. you're just venting and nothing comes of it, you got it off your chest, but then you're still stuck with the same problem. So get in a support group, get a therapist, study about autism. I have tons of books on autism and learning disabilities. I'm constantly reading articles. Um, 
I'm constantly trying new therapeutic techniques. Um, and it's no crazy hoodoo, voodoo, magic. Uh, you know, it's, it's meditation. It's um, sign language. It's making chalkboards. It's, it's a bunch of stuff. And you guys can reach out to us on our social media platforms um, at Romance Recovery Counseling or counselor at romancerecoverycounseling.com and ask us questions. We do consultations, we do coaching, um, we do family counseling, we do marriage mentoring, um, specifically for special needs families. Yeah. And so we, we again just thank Keith for allowing us to share our story with you guys and we could we could not be more grateful for this opportunity um to share what we've lived through and are living through and um we just we are very very grateful and thankful and we hope that something we said here gives you hope that you are not stuck um that the best way through your anxiety about Asperger's is to learn about it. Learn about it, embrace the therapies that you're gonna need and know that with help, your life can be more comfortable. I'm Shawnee Eskridge. And I'm Terrence Eskridge. And this is Anxiety on Anxiety, Asperger's and Autism.